Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, a community of math teacher educators learning to teach math teachers better. I am your co-host, Joel Aminon, and joining me is Jen Wolf. Jen, how are you? I'm doing well, Joel. Good to be with you. Yes, always good to be with you, Jen. And today, we are talking with Matthew Campbell who is Associate Professor of Mathematics Education and Associate Director and Coordinator of Teacher Education at West Virginia University. We are talking to Matt because of his varied experiences in leadership and scholarship in mathematics education or mathematics teacher education, and more specifically, his role as the Associate Vice President for STAR Fundraising for AMTE. Welcome, Matt. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. So, uh, you know, we list some titles, Matt, but like there's more to you than just titles. So can you take a minute to introduce yourself beyond what I already shared? What what did we miss? Um, well, you know, that 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 has been a lot of my work lately, particularly that um, teacher ed coordination job and associate yeah. directorship um, in our school of education. That has uh, been a big shift uh, in my responsibilities here at West Virginia University. Um, but yeah, I've been at WVU. This is now my 10th year. Uh, and so uh, that is a wild thing to say out loud. Um, and I've been, um, yeah, having great opportunities to work with primarily secondary uh, math teachers, both pre-service and practicing teachers. Um, originally from Long Island, New York, then via North Carolina and Oregon, and then here to West Virginia. Um, and so we can unpack some of that as we, as we go through here. But, um, but yeah, I think uh, I've been really fortunate to have opportunities to do interesting work, uh, work with interesting people, and hopefully, you know, bring, bring something to the different endeavors I've been a part of. Um, and, and, and move that work along. Nice. Nice. And I, I, I think about like you, Matt, and, uh, and maybe Jen has had these experiences where have people in our field, cause it's not that big of a, I mean, it's kind of a small space where it's like, Matt seems like a good guy. And like, you know, and just start to get to know and like having a, a few little conversations and then now getting to work with you a little bit more through AMT and getting to know you a little bit better. It's like, all right. So it's glad to, glad to, you know, make more of a relationship, but then also too great to work with you. So, and also happy to have you on the, on the podcast. So I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 So, um, and yeah, that whole thing about, you know, being like double digit years in, in our, uh, as a math teacher educator, that's like, just now finally starting to like, Hey, I'm, I don't have to act like a grad student anymore. I can, you know, <laughs> maybe I can get the donut with the coffee. It's okay. Yeah. Every now and then. Um, so, okay. So I, I digress. So let's start with the, you know, one of our traditional questions. So how did you start teaching math teachers, Matt? So, and, and why, what, what was the path? Yes. So I, I started as a, as a high school math teacher. Um, I went to, NC State University and uh, as an undergrad and prepared to be a math teacher um, through a degree there. Um, had some really great opportunities, not just to go through uh, a teacher ed program, but uh, to do some work with faculty, particularly Holly Lynn Lee. Um, I had some opportunities to collaborate with her on some research, which I think eventually opened the door to where I am now. But um, but I started teaching and and I taught in New York and in North Carolina, and I 
even after only a couple of years, I started to kind of wonder what was next. Um, not that I was sure that it had to be something next, but I just found myself kind of looking around, wondering what my kind of career in education would be. And it was not because I was feeling like I was having a hard time with teaching. If in fact, any, any real feedback I was getting suggested I was doing fine. I think in hindsight, I maybe feel differently about that myself, but I knew even in the moment that like, surely there's ways I need to get better, but I was getting generally just good feedback, mm -hmm. uh, feedback, positive feedback. Um, and I also didn't, didn't have a sense of like then how I would get better or what that would look like for me professionally. So I was back in Raleigh at the time and I had the opportunity to pursue a master's back at NC state and, um, and have some funding. So I did that full time and I figured at worst or not at worst, but at one end would be a little sabbatical from my early career of teaching, or it would, you know, open up some other opportunities. But even that, then I didn't go into that thinking that I would be a math teacher educator. I don't think I had a clear enough idea of what that would be. And I was so early in my teaching career that it's not like I had had experiences leading professional development or being a coach or any, any sort of those roles. Um, but in that, in that time I, I had uh, just more exposure to funded projects, to work with teachers. Um, and also um, at that point I had the opportunity to work with Paula Stein and, um, be a TA in her one of her elementary math methods courses. And that was really my first experience seeing things from that side. But even then, like in terms of my identity, I don't think that experience was really a space where I thought, oh, now I'm a teacher educator. Mm -hmm. um, but then I went to my PhD out at Oregon State University and got the chance to work with Rebecca Elliott and really was given a lot of opportunities in, in hindsight, almost like I'm not sure why I was given that much trust, like, because I was still, as I say it now, like, really new in my career, but I was given the opportunity to work on a funded project, uh, researching mathematics leader learning, um, and then was given opportunities to teach courses in the uh, math and science teacher education program at Oregon State. And that just became then part of what I did and really helped shape my idea of what I wanted to do professionally. And then really did see myself, not just as a math education researcher or future faculty member, but someone who works specifically in teacher education. Um, and so it kind of happened in a just very organic way, I think. Um, and I, I was given lots of great opportunities, got to work with great people and I feel like really um, found found a niche and found an interest. But it does, I think, relate back to maybe my early career as a teacher, which was being really mindful of, you know, what is a part of teacher preparation? And just as importantly, what is part of that continued learning that happens throughout one's career? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I wonder too, like you mentioned, you know, a, a couple names in there from your various institutions, like, did they see in you, uh, some things where they're like, they kind of like point you like, Hey, these are might be some opportunities. Like they're, they're almost like seeing your path before you're seeing your own path. I think so. Yeah. So actually as an undergrad, I had a scholarship at NC state that, um, 
one of the features of that or one of the requirements even was to work with a faculty member um, kind of beyond the way you might um, normally as an undergrad. Though I think that's evolved. I think undergraduate research is is a lot more common nowadays. But that's how I got connected with um, Holly Lynn Lee and, um, you know, I did some research with her, presented at the state math teaching conference with her. And, um, you know, I think she probably, she obviously knew what it took to be a a math faculty member and um, math ed faculty member. And, and, and I guess, yeah, maybe saw that in me. Um, I also got advice from people at NC state um, having done my undergrad and master's there, they said, you need to go somewhere else if you're going to do your PhD. And so I was fortunate to be able to do that, you know, personally. Um, but there was sort of, they, I think, thought, well, if you're going to go on to do certain things, it might benefit to, to have experiences in a different place. So I think I really did um, benefit from uh, real mentoring in, including in ways that in the moment I probably couldn't see, but, Mm -hmm. but really benefited from on the back end. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I guess it's something that's a theme that I think we've been trying to share in this, uh, through this venue is like, Hey, doing those shoulder tapping moments, those like, you know, now that we're, we're becoming the more experienced, uh, folks that, Hey, I see this, these things in you, or I see a path that possibly that maybe you don't see, just see yet. So that's, that's a good thing. That really is, that really is a, um, an interesting, I mean, just like you said, with the number of years to, to start to see yourself as like, uh, that you are someone who's in that position for someone else to, Mm -hmm. to provide that mentoring. I mean, part of it is like, well, who, who cares what I have to say, (laughs) right? Who, Who am I to be the the kind of guide to someone else in the field, but, but you, you, you are right. Yeah. You get to a point yeah. and you are, and it, it becomes an interesting exploration of your own identity and willingness to kind of see yourself in that way. So that's been a fun part of the journey of late, you know, to check the box that says I'm a mid career faculty <laughs> member, not an yeah. early career faculty member. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, hey, so, you know, given the experience with some of these uh, people that you mentioned, and and we'll post a link to the Hollywood Lee episode that we had, because that, you know, that was an amazing episode with all the things you, she was mentioning there. I think those were on data science. So what is the best advice that you received when you started teaching math teachers? Yeah, I don't know that it was like people sitting me down and yeah. giving any sort of direct advice. If anything, I've I've benefited greatly from seeing the way different people approach the work and seeing the 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 trends and themes in that. And in in all the cases, you know, I mentioned Holly Lynn, I mentioned Rebecca Elliott. One of my grad school colleagues was Kristen Lessig in Math Ed. Um, Also Ron Gray, who's a science educator. the project I worked on, um, RMLL, uh, Elham Kazemi at University of Washington was one of the co-PIs, uh, Judy Mummy and Kathy Carroll, who were at Wested, um, were on that project as well. And in all those cases, and I also, actually, I do want to acknowledge something. I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of amazing women. And I think that is not, uh, insignificant. I think my, I, I've, 
it's not just that I've worked with great people, but I've also worked with great women. And I think that has been something that has shaped the the work I do. But in all those cases, I, I've just been able to see the way that people, um, that these scholars and educators work closely with teachers, mm-hmm. care for teachers and students, take seriously what teachers say, take seriously what the um, demands of their job are and the ways that they can be best supported and developed. And so I think, you know, at my own sense of the work has been shaped by those examples. And that includes like being really mindful of the way teachers do and need to continue to have a voice um, when we think about any sort of initiative or any sort of project or any opportunity to work with teachers um, and to be really mindful about the settings in which they do their work and the way that the particular position I come from to those sorts of interactions can be an asset and a value add, but not in a way that doesn't, uh, that takes away their agency, their voice and their expertise. Um, And so I think a lot of what I do I try to to pay attention to that and um and I've had great great mentors and great models to to think about that over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Jen, that kind of I mean the way that Matt was just talking there about like teacher voice and and their agency. I mean that, that kind of I don't know echoes some of the conversations we've had about respecting teachers and, and and what they're bringing and not just saying, Hey, we're bringing a solution to you. And like, it'll work. Trust us, you know, like versus like, no, 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 this is a, this is a conversation to be had. Yeah. It kind of connects to in my mind, like um, when Matt had said that, you know, he's not mid career now, right. Double digit <laughs> mid career. And like, are we in this position to be able to mentor and offer advice, right. In that transition. And then I think, uh, based on what you had shared with us, it feels like you're coming at it from a place where you're seeking to learn from and with teachers and that they mm-hmm. are experts in what they know. And and in doing so and approaching it that way, I think for me, just speaking, it helps remind me that, yeah, I do have something to offer because I also recognize that other people have things to offer to me. Mm-hmm. So if it's that um, relationship, it's quite, I think that's helpful to think yeah. about it that way. And I think that's shaped a little bit by, you know, being someone who had only taught in K-12 schools for a few years. So I didn't, I think I've always tried to um, position myself in a way that acknowledges that. It's not something I'm ashamed of or run away from, but I just, and I realize that the experiences I've had since then give me particular uh, or have built up something to add to a particular interaction, but, um, but I can't claim to know what, uh, a 20 year teacher, uh, knows, um, or uh, particularly about their specific context. And so, yeah, I mean, always entering a conversation and an interaction, trying to learn with and from someone, um, while also seeing what you can contribute yourself. That's, um, it's always an interesting line to walk, but, but one that, that always feels like when you're in the right balance of those things, it always feels like the best, the best situation. 
Mm-hmm. It's yeah. uh, it's so relational, right? And so when we're working with teachers in schools, in our work at um, our institutions, right? When we're doing teacher preparation and thinking about, okay, here are the things that we want to do, but what are the realities of the context that we live in? And so what are those kind of bite-sized pieces, I think, that we can try to do so that we are really, truly like bridging uh, theory and practice and thinking about their context, like you're saying. Yeah. Absolutely. And we would say the same thing about the work we'd want teachers to do with students, right? Which is seeing the resources and assets that students bring forward. And so if anything, it's a bit hypocritical if our own work with teachers doesn't follow a similar, a similar philosophy. Um, but, uh, but yeah, really, um, you know, I, I agree with, with, or I, I would take the stance too that um, anything we'd want to have teachers think about or do differently should um, kind of be at that more bite size um, or kind of uh, something that's clearly situated and somewhat congruent with the context they're working in. Um, and another thing that that has become a theme for me of late is um, always being sure to start with what, how teachers would even frame the problem that they're trying to solve with a new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes a way to kind of always situate the work you then go on to do together in a place that, that really resonates with what they're trying to do um, mm-hmm. and, and, and the problems they're trying to solve and the way they're making sense of those problems. Yeah, that's good. So, Matt, what's a word, phrase, maybe quote that helps you center the work you do in teaching math teachers? Um, I, I, I think about a, a quote that uh, actually from my wife, who's not an educator. She works in, in sales and sales training. So actually, I guess she is an educator in some ways. But, there you um, go. But she'll say things like, um, she'll say something to the effect of, you know, that everyone's trying their best, (laughs) or at least that's how you should uh, enter into an interaction with that assumption. And Mm -hmm. I think it connects to what I was saying previously, which is it's easy to sort of get caught up in, oh, here's the way it should be, or here's the next best thing. And we need to make sure more people are doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's almost inevitably some amount of resistance to that or people aren't doing that thing or people say things that are sort of inconsistent with that idea. And um, it's then easy to just get really kind of disappointed. But I feel like instead you frame it as like, Everyone's trying their best. People want to do a good job. People um, want to improve, but you just have to figure out where, from where are they improving? From where Mm -hmm. are they coming from? And I feel like if you can spend more time finding that place and working with them to get better together and yourself to get better, um, that's always a more satisfying spot instead of feeling like you're just beating your head against the wall because schools and classrooms and teachers and students aren't looking the way that you feel they should mm-hmm. um, in, specifically in the case of, uh, of, of our work. So I think, yeah, that idea that if you assume that everyone 
at least initially, has good intentions, is doing their best, wants to be better, wants the best for their students or colleagues or whatever it might be, that always feels like a healthier place and a more satisfying place to to be from and I think it, uh, to work from. And, it, and it, I think it's part of that idea of, of really trying to find the common ground to work with, with teachers yeah. in, in my case. Well, it's like that, you know, that asset based perspective. Right. But then also too, you talked about earlier about defining the problem, you know, helping them to, and then if we, Hey, this, we're all trying to solve this problem now. Hey, maybe here's some resources that might make your efforts more beneficial towards addressing that problem or, or you know, like having that sort of common ground, I think is, is a, is beneficial towards that relationship in working towards it, but then also everyone's seeing like they have a, some skin in the game of working with each other. Right. Yeah, I know we can, we can talk more about it uh, later, but a project I, I am a, a co-lead on called Mountaineer Mathematics Master Teachers or M3T. We have a statewide network of teachers across West Virginia and, um, you know, in some ways they're positioned as teacher leaders through that work. It's a project funded by um, an NSF NOICE Track 3 grant, as well as support from our State Department of Education. Um, and we're, we've built this statewide, what's called a Networked Improvement Community, or NIC. Yeah, and, there we go. <laughs> yeah, and a big part of that is um, both that work kind of philosophically, the, the improvement science and network improvement work, but, um, but also the way we've taken it up, um, I think follows through on all these themes, including teacher's voice, teacher's agency, teacher's expertise, teacher's knowledge of their own context, but also the, the importance of starting from that problem that you can define and then choose to work on uh, in community. Um, I'll give a shout out to my collaborator, Joanna Burke Kinderman, who's a, um, a mathematics coach here in West Virginia in Pocahontas County, which is one of, if not the most rural counties east of the Mississippi. And um, I had the chance to get to know her several years ago after starting here at WVU. And um, she was doing some great work working with teachers just in her in her district. And now using some of those ideas, uh, we've, and thanks to some funding, we have uh, built this statewide network uh, built on some of those same, those same principles. And, and I, it's been really amazing to see the way that teachers um, just respond differently to that yeah. type of a, of an arrangement around their own professional learning and the ways that they can be uh, a central part of that. That's awesome. I was just uh, wondering, cause like uh, I'm currently with my Dean teaching an improvement science course. And then with the number one thing in the improvement science is about defining the problem. I'm like, what if this, is? and then all of a sudden you said network improvement community. I'm like, there we go. There it is. <laughs> so it all, it all comes together. Yeah, These yeah. Things don't come out of nowhere, but um but it has been, I think even before I became familiar with that work, mm -hmm. um, a lot of the, the work I was doing as a teacher educator involved uh, practice-based teacher education pedagogies, things mm -hmm. like rehearsal, yeah, yeah. using videos, using scripts, um, and also thinking about the types of things that uh, 
kind of teachers could do and act on in smaller yet still well-connected and very authentic ways in terms of their instruction. And um, so that attention to the kind of realities of practice, what it is that someone could, could do in an early phase of their development um, that that's been part of my thinking for a while, but that, that idea of shared problem sense making of problems and pursuit of solving parts of that problem has been an, an interesting kind of addition to that line yeah. of thinking. Well, I like the improvement science from a, from a teacher's perspective. Cause it was like for someone, when I was first started, I taught the same course three times in a row. And I was always like, I'm trying to work on engagement around some, you know, collaborative problem. And it's like those little incremental changes I would make throughout the day. And it's like, now there's almost like, Hey, here's a framework, a book, the language all around. And then on how to formalize that sort of work that it's like using those aptitudes that man, that teacher that teaches, you know, that, you know, that same class over and over again now and, and the, the, or the same course year after year. And you're like, what are the changes I'm making? And now I've got the language and I've got a community around me. That's all on board with some of those same sort of principles and, and practices. So that's, that's cool. Awesome. Um, what advice would you give uh, to someone else starting out as a teacher of math teachers? I think a lot of it would connect to things I've, I've already said. I feel like one would be well served to try to understand their work as a, um, as a teacher educator, whether it be with pre-service teachers or practicing teachers. Um, yeah, like you said, that that sums it up from from that kind of asset perspective, and and in a way that really understands the contexts in which uh, the work is happening. And it's always an interesting balance because sometimes there there are things that really need to be dramatically transformed. <laughs> there are things happening in schools that that aren't good, that are har even kind of harmful to, to students. And that line of kind of um, measured incremental change versus more dramatic um, advocacy is always an interesting one to walk. Um, and so I don't know that I'm fully on one, it would seem like I'm, I'm more on the incremental side of that, but, but I think even, even if, there was a space for more, um, more dramatic change. It would still come from a place of relationship building of really deep understanding of a context. And, um, and I think that's work, uh, well worth doing for a teacher educator. And mm -hmm. I think also just realizing that like, um, and I think Jen said it nicely earlier that, that, how you choose to see the other people you're working with is part of it, but then also how you see yourself and the contribution you could make to, uh, and bring to that, to that interaction. I think, um, you know, there, there is something particular about being a teacher edu educator, whether, and whether it be, you know, um, on the research side or the teaching side, um, you know, through grad school experiences and the, and the, the skills that were built up through that. Um, 
And so I think seeing kind of what you could bring to the interaction while not feeling like it has to be everything, <laughs> um, I think is, is an important thing to remember if I were, uh, talking with someone, uh, starting out and, but it's hard, right? I think sometimes the things we're expected to do, particularly as teacher educators in faculty roles, sometimes what we're expected to do for the maintenance and promotability of our faculty roles maybe doesn't line up with, with some of the ways that work would happen. Um, you know, working, it's, it, it's hard to work closely with teachers sometimes. It's, it's a real-time commitment. It doesn't necessarily <clears throat> produce the products that you might be required to, to produce as a, as a faculty member. And, and so balancing that is, I don't have an answer, but yeah. it's definitely something to consider as a teacher educator, particularly if you're um, kind of adhering to, uh, to different kinds of expectations professionally. Yeah. Cause yeah, it's kind of like, Hey, uh, we got to work on this paper. I'm like, uh, why, <laughs> like, <laughs> why do we versus like saying like, Hey, you know, we, if we came up with something, we should share it. And like, here's some avenues that we can, we can share that's it. Right. And so that's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like that's, you know, in trying to, trying to balance the the needs and, and just time with folks. And speaking of that, <laughs> there we come to our next uh, question. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and how do you set boundaries and priorities to get the right things done and still enjoy your life, knowing that we're all a work in progress? So, and, and Jen and yeah, I, I are, are both nodding in, in agreement. Like, yeah, we're, we're, yeah. I, I think I sat on the couch for a little bit too long this morning. I'm like, man, I couldn't, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I'm like, I shouldn't have done that. Well, anyway, we, but we got to do those things, right? Yeah, like, because yeah, how are we going to show up for the family, friends, colleagues, peers, That's right. our community if we don't take time to just yeah, chill or something, you know? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I saw this question. I, um, I laughed because it would, I feel even be gracious to call me a work in prog progress on this topic. But, um, but yeah, I, the, one of the first things that comes to mind is when, when you don't find that balance, you're not your best self for all the things you're trying to, to tackle. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's easy to, uh, pride yourself on the ability to juggle it all, um, and kind of overcome adversity or whatever it might be. Um, but there are certainly limits and, um, I've, I've certainly, I, I feel like I've felt that of late, both the, the kind of glamorization of the ability to juggle it all, but then feeling really, um, troubled when it's, when you start to drop some of those, those balls. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, <clears throat> so yeah, it is, it is at a work in progress for sure. I mean, I think those, <clears throat> but I think key is, is those reminders that um, you're not necessarily doing yourself or anyone else any, any favors by, by continuing to, to juggle all the things. Um, I have some built in uh, governors with a, a spouse and a, uh, and two kids that, um, you know, and it doesn't 
have to be that for someone, but, but it's certainly things that um, put things in perspective. You can see that some of the things you get stressed about um, maybe aren't uh, as important as they feel in the, in the moment, or maybe not as urgent as they feel in the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And Again, it's it just you know almost like what I said earlier. It's it's an interesting moment because you could get frustrated by that because you get overwhelmed and think like, oh, I have to get this thing done, but I've got to go run to dance practice or whatever it might be, or you know, the kids are fighting in the background. Um, or you could just sort of use that as this awakening to say, huh, like that's really important stuff. The thing I'm kind of stressing out on here may not work related, may not um, may not be as urgent as I'm, I'm chalking it up to be. But um, I think to finding you know ways to collaborate with people and trust people, know that they um, what often want to help uh, if you let them, <laughs> and. Um, uh, also would be understanding if things don't go as planned. Um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate for that at, at many points of my career. And, uh, I like to offer, I like to think I offer the same grace the other way when, when it, when it comes time for it. Um, so, you know, <clears throat> working with, ha- you know, having a supportive family, having a supportive, uh, professional network, um, you, you, you find yourself in situations where um, people lift each other up when it's needed most. And so still need to do a better job on some of the boundaries, but I've been fortunate to, um, to have those supports and, the, and my own willingness to kind of rely on those supports when, when it's needed. Yeah. I guess in yeah. two of the, Oh, go ahead, Jen. No, I was going to say that um, when you talked about like reaching out for help, right? It reminds me of some conversations Joel and I have had about, you know, like when you're like probably really open to just helping anyone, right? That's just a generous nature, but you won't ask for help yourself. And I think there's a lot of people in our field (laughs) that are like that. And then it was a reminder when we had our conversations, Joel, that um, it's actually a gift, in a way, because if, if you don't allow someone else to help you or you don't reach out and um, um, ask for help, then you're denying them the gift and that joy that you experience when you help someone. So sometimes reframing it that way is like, oh, yeah, I should do that. And sometimes we do this work in isolation and we should really do it in community. So um, I appreciate thinking about how we can do more of that. I like to give Jen that gift all the time of helping <laughs> me. <laughs> You help me too. So it works out, right? That's we right. Do it there's like, oh man, there's just gifts just flying back and forth on some of our Zooms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love that. I love that way of looking at it. It is yeah. because I think it, it's it's often easy to see it as a one-way street. Like you obviously, when you're the one helping or stepping up, there's something that comes with that. But to that's a really helpful framing uh, to think about the other side. Um, and to think about the person who would be offering that support. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it extends to our work in teacher education too, right? Because if we learn from and with our students, do we thank our students when they 
helped us learn something. I don't know if we do that as much as we should be doing, right? Because we're learning from them and we say we do, but do we thank them? Do we show them? Do we explicitly say it? So that's a great, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I was just this morning had a, a class where we were talking about, um, classroom discussions and, um, you know, it's easy to look at a static list of talk moves and think, oh, that's great. I should do more of that. One of the things that came up in the discussion is um, how certain ways of even doing those things that on paper are, quote, good to do in in a classroom discussion as a, as a facilitator of that, as a teacher, it could actually take some of the ownership of the thinking and the work away from individual students, depending mm-hmm. on how it plays out. And that idea of, um, so that idea is very fresh in my mind right now. And I think it connects to this idea, which is if we're truly valuing the contributions and learning from one another, um, that we should be really grateful and thankful for that and should make that, uh, obvious and public, um, and I should have, I should have thanked my class this morning for, uh, you know, not something I probably didn't know, but it's just like those moments where things sort of line up and become clear and you can see the, the good and the bad, or you can learn a new perspective. Yeah. Um, it really is to the, is a gift and one that we should, um, you know, continue to be grateful for and should make yeah, people know that that we are grateful for it. Yeah. So Matt, I want to, uh, honor your time. And as we roll through some of these, uh, questions, again, you got a lot of other things going, but, uh, you've already mentioned the Mountaineer mathematics master teacher M3T project. It's, it sounds like a, like a, like a superhero name, like, you know, the Mountaineer mathematics. It's awesome. Mountaineer master on now on the history channel, you know, something, something like that. But, uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, any, anything else that you wanted to mention about that project that you didn't mention before? I mean, the influence that you've seen so far with it, with you and yes. your roles at MTE? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, you know, I think it, it, it again serves as a, as a space where I really try to think about my role and uh, as part of that collective. Um, that this is not professional development of the model of I have all this stuff to share <clears throat> and I'm going to share it and kind of be the the expert and hope that people do the things that I think should be done. Um, it, it So as a result, it's really in, it, and sometimes uncomfortable. The thing I've said before, so we're in the fourth year of a, of a six year project. Oh, wow. Um, we had done some pilot work before that we have 40, uh, teacher middle and high school math teachers across the state who are fellows, uh, funded by the, the noise fellowship. Um, and then each of them work and, and they, as a group represents about half of the County school districts across West Virginia. And really, if you look at a map, we have, you know, highlighted dots and everything across every kind of region of the state. We're a very kind of peculiar shaped state, but we have every, every branch and panhandle and everything has, 
has some some dots in it and folks involved, which is great. <clears throat> and also great, you know, I'm not from West Virginia, so getting an opportunity to learn um, about different parts of the state, learn about uh, particularly rural communities across the state has been really interesting and I think goes hand in hand with this idea of, of listening to teachers and valuing the context that they are working in and the expertise they bring. Um, but each of those fellows, as part of this networked improvement community, then recruit colleagues in their school or district um, to be part of kind of a mini NIC that yeah. is all part of the bigger group. And so one of the things we found, we actually presented last uh, April at the Carnegie Foundation's Improvement Summit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things we found is that when we say we're centering teacher voice, we mean that our teachers are leaders. Doesn't just mean that teachers are involved. Doesn't just right. mean that we're sitting down and listening to teachers. We re really are trying to give teachers the tools to work in different ways in their schools, in their own classrooms, and then in their schools and districts. And, um, and that's just been really cool. And just to, in some of the contexts, there's just been amazing uptake, not of a particular curricular or instructional idea, but just of a, of a way of working differently together. And I think that amount of professionalization of teachers now more than ever is so vital, um, not just to improving teaching and learning, but to hopefully having people continue to stay and grow in the profession. Um, but in the early going, we actually started during the first full kind of virtual year with COVID <laughs> lockdowns, yeah. uh -huh. which was not our plan, uh, but we did it. We had our first cohort. We met entirely virtually at a time when they probably in some ways needed that connection. Um, and some people reported out at the end of that year with our, our evaluation, they said, uh, this was some of the best professional development I've ever had. And I remember seeing that and thinking, we haven't done any professional <laughs> development because it wasn't the typical model right. because we really focused on dwelling in understanding the problem finding where there's that common hunger for people to work together on a specific part of the problem and then come up with these really in some ways, small ways, seemingly small ways to try and address that problem. But what we were really building in for them was um, a set of tools for how to work differently around problems and solutions and measuring impact and deciding what revisions to make the next time. Yeah. Um, that along with, I think, just treating people more like professionals. And that, as it turns out, seems to be pretty important when it comes yeah. to how people receive something that they're a part of. Yeah. Not just get handed on a survey like, look, we got teacher voice. Here we go. We, we, That's we've right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That could be defined in a lot of ways. And, right. and we've seen that. And, and, and I think we're, it's messier. It's messier to, to hand over some of that leadership to, to teachers um, when it comes to messier, when it comes to sort of the logistics or some of the clear kind of efforts and outcomes that we would otherwise define ourselves. But um, with any of that messiness, which is probably just really from my own perspective, yeah. it comes so much benefit. And um, 
you know, we're getting to the point where these folks are going to start sharing, um, you know, these instructional routines or whatever they're doing. And, and it's not just, hey, try this out, but it's saying, hey, we came at it from this problem. This is the thing we tried. This is how we measured. Um, and we're talking about what's called practical measurements, you know, like you could, you could, add, we might ultimately care about things like student achievement data. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people still don't care about that, but are we going to ask our students, like, do you feel more like someone who does math today, right? Our aim as a network is not raise test scores. It's that more students have an opportunity to genuinely do math and be seen yeah. as doers of math in their classrooms. And so if students feel more confident to share their thinking or feel like their ideas are heard or feel like they're listening to their to their peers or feel like ideas are starting to be more connected, um, we see that as a, as a positive. And, um, and so that, there we're giving students voice um, as part of our network that's partly also about teacher voice. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I'm taking some notes because I got some ideas from the Mississippi angle, because I think Mississippi and West Virginia probably have some commonalities in, in there. There's there. Um, so thinking next about your role as a the associate vice president for star fundraising, I know that you've had some experience with star, but then also too, you have an opportunity now to support uh star uh, in, in helping raise some funds, but let's just start there. Like where, what, what was your experience with star? Yeah, so I was uh, a star fellow in the 2015 cohort. So I had applied during my first year as a faculty member at WVU and um, had the opportunity to to be part of that summer's cohort or the cohort that started that summer. Um, for me, I was, you know, if I think about my my path through grad school, I had I had had lots of opportunities to go to conferences, uh, get to know other people in the field, both established members of the field and also grad students at other institutions. Some of my collaborations uh, were born out of, some of my collaborations as a faculty member were born out of um, connections I made with other grad students as we both were or all were moving up through through our doctoral programs, um, even at instit- uh, different institutions. So all that is to say, I, I always felt well-connected. I felt like I knew a lot of people in the field, had had a lot of great experiences. And then I was working at an institution where there were other ma- math educators. Yeah. And I felt like I had a, a, a good amount of supports. And I say all that because sometimes folks who become star fellows and um, and really benefit from that are folks who are the only math teacher educator or math educator at their institution or who mm. maybe didn't have some of those earlier experiences to, to sort of enter into the broader professional field um, socially and scholarly. Um, and that's one of the really important um, features of the uh of the program um on top of that in that first year the opportunity to work closely with some more established members of the field and learn about the different aspects of being a faculty member which are research teaching and service but for me you know again i had all those experiences but it was such a 
such a great opportunity to get to know even more people in the field and to have people who, you know, we're, we're at, we were more or less at the same phase of our development. So right. people who were going up for tenure at about the same time, right. You know, people, and to have that kind of a community, um, not just during that year, but you go to subsequent conferences and, and you have now a whole new network of people to connect with. Um, it, it really was valuable to, um, you know, because you're not doing any of this work in a vacuum or in isolation. It is um, the opportunities to work with, with others. And that could be working around a research project that could be working on um you know, shared courses that you teach, but it could also just be other people who are living that life of a faculty member and to have that network of folks to check in with. And um, again, to our earlier point, you could be a support to them and that's a gift and they could be a support to you. And that's a gift. Um, That's, that, that's been a really um, has been now for, 13, 14 years, a really powerful part of this program. I mean, we're now at the point where there's more than 400, I think 430 at last count above that of, of star fellows since 2010 when the program started. Um, And so it's, it's amazing to think how many people have had the opportunity to, uh, to benefit from this growing network. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking too, like not only, you know, you you brought your network with you to star and then that could be someone for someone that doesn't have that network now they're connected to more people because they're connected to you or vice versa now when you go back to your institution you're also bringing that network back with you like hey i know you're doing this area of math ed research that i'm i'm not very familiar with but i know person i met at star uh, knows all about it and so like there's you can make other connections like i think that's that's the nice thing is like it it offers some cross pollination like at this, like you said, like kind of a similar level, like now there's more connections across for more better, for more good work to be done. Right. And so, and on, yeah. and honestly, like that's such a helpful reminder because the moments of those connections could be so short, right. It mm-hmm. could be, you just overhear what someone says and you offer a, a connection or you're at a conference and it's like, Hey, you and you, you, you're talking about similar things. And yeah. And like, and then maybe you are not part of that at all after yeah. that, but it could be so impactful for what those people end up working on um, or having opportunities to do. Um, so yeah, it, it, some of those benefits are so fleeting. They seem so fleeting in terms of your involvement in them. But I think that just shows how, how, what an what an amazing community we're a part of, not just with Star, but just in the math teacher education community in general. Yeah. That th- that things can happen so quickly, but can then be so powerful because of of the opportunities to work with all, so many great people. Yeah, like I have my friend Nick Wasserman, who's like is one of my closest like Star friends. But like the work he does, I I he has to explain it to me a lot, but then, you know, I know, like, I know Dusty, like Dusty knows his work a lot. And they had like Dusty invited him on the podcast. I'm like, oh, I'm learning more about what Nick's doing, <laughs> what what kind of work Nick's actually doing. This is great. So, but that's, that's kind of cool the way, again, those, uh, those networks kind of uh, fit together. So, 
Um, and again, to be uh, good with people's time, uh, you leading a, a fundraising effort. Like, how can people uh, support uh, Star? Yes. So, um, you know, it's important to note that AMTE has um, kind of assumed ownership of the Star program. It had originally been funded by uh, NSF funding, and yeah. now is um, made possible by various donations from companies, from individuals, from organizations. Um, we uh, make push, you know, make a push to get former Star Fellows or previous Star Fellows um, to to contribute back to the program, um, and then of course others who are uh, you know whose whose early years preceded the Star Program, but who are still uh, part of the uh, Mathed community, and so um, amte.net slash star uh you can see all the information about the star fellows program including the opportunity to make a contribution um any amount is appreciated uh for the more the more we raise the more fellows we would be able to support each year as a um in in those in those cohorts so right now actually today well I know this is all based on when it comes out. November 15th is when um, uh, the uh, deadline for applications for the 2024 star cohort is is due. And so things are still rolling. Um, those people will hopefully be able to support another great cohort, not just in 2024, but in years to come. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I think um, aside from, from, from giving financially, Another great way to support the Star Fellows Program is to continue telling the story of the Star Fellows Program. I think if people can share um, how they've benefited from it, their good memories of it, um, and it could not just be how they benefited from it, but how their students benefited from it. Um, and I think continuing to tell the story of this um, of this great program is another way to continue to highlight the work that's happening and uh, why it would be such an important thing to, to support. Sometimes when things are supported by grant funding, we just take it for granted, right? Yep. Oh, this thing ex mm -hmm. exists. Well, now, like, it's really important to continue to say, like, what does this add? How can we, um, uh, and, and why is it important that we continue to support it in, in a really strong way? Yeah. So, we're going to put links to that in our show notes, uh, both to the program and to uh, the fundraising uh, button, basically. And then also to just, uh, you know, the same thing we talked about shoulder tapping before, where it's like either supporting folks at your institution, like, hey, are you aware of this program? You should apply for it. Or two, if somebody is applying for it, also then possibly talking to a chair or talking to someone who can then because there's some support that the institution needs to offer as well. Like, hey, this is a good thing not only for them, but also for us as an institution to have um, someone at the, at the star in the star program. So uh, anything else to promote or share, Matt, we're again, we will, we got some links that we'll put in the show notes to things that you mentioned, but anything else? Nothing specific. I really appreciated the opportunity to connect with you all today. It's um, uh, thank you to the, to the earlier point. I think I learned things and I thank you for it. And um it's uh, another great reminder of what a what a 
wonderful community we get to be a part of uh, Mm -hmm. with math educators and math teacher educators. Um, And uh, especially over the past few years, it's, it's, it's great to remember um, how strong, uh, what, what value strong communities can bring. So, so I appreciate the opportunity to chat and, uh, and yeah, thanks to both of you. Yeah. Jen, any final words? Thank you. No, this was beautiful. I, I enjoyed spending time with you both today, and I know our audience will too. Yeah. So thanks, Matt. And thanks again for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, which will allow others looking for similar content to find it. We hope this episode will help you take action on something you just heard and facilitate your interaction with other math teacher educators. For example, any star fellow, star mentors, star fellow colleagues, co-authors, collaborators, or just... Folks that want to support the next generation of MathMax teacher educators at higher ed institutions, please head to amte.net slash star, follow the link in the show notes, and hit the Make a Contribution button. Your financial contribution to the STAR program will help you take action on something you just heard today and provide support to our early career colleagues. Also, did you know that AMTE has another podcast, the MathMax Teacher Educator Podcast? The MTE podcast accompanies the latest edition of the MathMax Teacher Educator Journal and has authors discuss their work in the latest edition. Find a link to the MTE podcast in the show notes for this episode.